Good news. If you're here, God isn't done with you yet. Life is full of seasons, and each season brings with it new beginnings. New life. These seasons are full of opportunity and uncertainty. Their endings are often bittersweet. But each ending carries the promise of a new beginning. Well, good morning. morning. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or if you guys are on the internet, uh, we're certainly glad that you're uh, with us today. What a great day. Would you agree it's a great day? It's a wonderful day. And and, uh, today um, is Baptism Sunday uh, here at all of our campuses. And I like to, I've seen about this morning, it's it's actually identified. Day. It's when we identify uh, with Christ. And so I want to invite you to do that. If you're, uh, if you're here, here at this campus, we're going to go to the Isle of Palms, uh, uh, o- the ocean for a baptism. Now, I don't go in the water myself uh, because there are things in the water that, uh, <clears throat> that I really am not interested in swimming with. And so, but we have never lost a person yet. And uh, it'll be a great week. And uh, so, why did I say that? Just the <laughs> baptism numbers just went down just, just like that, didn't they? Yeah. Also this weekend, uh, we're planting some new life-giving churches. If you're part of Seacoast, you know that's what we do is we plant churches. We planted 520-some, I think, uh, in, the, in the last uh, 12 years. And, and today we're planting 10 brand new life-giving churches all over the United States. And uh, so, so, what I want to do is I want to read where they are so that if you have friends that live in that area that, uh, that you, can, uh, you can point them maybe to a church there. So Turning Point Church in Chaska, Minnesota, Resurgent Church in Montreal, Quebec. How many of you think they need more life-giving churches in Canada? That's great. That's awesome. And uh, Lifeway Church in Anvil, Pennsylvania, Ascending Life Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, United Church, Dover, Delaware, Oaks Chapel, Raleigh, North Carolina, City Hills Church, Knoxville, Tennessee. (laughs) They need Jesus in Knoxville. I mean, seriously. Seriously. All they've got is volunteers. A lot of volunteers are good, though. Volunteers are, we like volunteers at church, so that's good. That's good. Uh, Hope Church. Winter Garden, Florida, Diversity Church, Grand Prairie, Texas, and Element Church in East Lansing, Michigan, home of the Spartans. And uh, so, anyway, life-giving churches everywhere. Let's give, let's give them a hand. Just that—that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, it's my privilege today to introduce our guest, Max Licato. I mean, uh, many of you have read his book. He's a—he's a pastor. Uh, he's a great leader. Uh, speaker. At one point, um, he was Reader's Digest called him the greatest preacher in America, and uh, and he's written so many wonderful, wonderful books. He's written a um, hundred, about a hundred books, eighty million of them in print. Uh, I was mentioning to him earlier. If you put my book with his one hundred, there's a little over eighty million that are in in print. <laughs> and, uh, 
So, so not a lot over, but a little over 80 million in print. And uh, just an inspiration to everybody. I know I, uh, I know that I, um, uh, around Easter time, will often reread uh, his uh, Six Hours One Friday, uh, just to have inspiration uh, for what Easter is about. And it's a real honor and privilege uh, to have him here at Seacoast. We, we really are a great guy. And uh, would you just uh, stand and give a warm, warm Seacoast welcome to Max Licato as he comes. Thank you. You <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. I love your pastor. I do. And uh, have been an admirer of this church from a distance for many, many years. And our congregation in San Antonio has benefited from, from your example when it comes to understanding the idea of one church in many locations. I remember when this first idea got floated and I said, this is never going to work. I mean, it's just not, this, this doesn't work. And now we're, we're on seven campuses, six in San Antonio and one in Brazil, and uh, are learning every day from you. So we're taking notes on you and are very grateful to the pastor and the great inspiration he's been. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for letting me uh, come your way. I, I, I do serve a church in San Antonio, and I've been there since 1988. And they are so tired of me. <laughs> they are thrilled when I travel. They are. They get so excited when I'm gone. <laughs> They've been giving me a hard time lately telling me that my sermons are too long. In fact, just a few weeks ago, a guy got up right in the middle of one of my sermons. started walking out. I stopped everything. I said, hey, buddy, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to get a haircut. <laughs> I said, well, why didn't you get one before you came in? He said, I didn't need one before I came in. <laughs> you wouldn't do that, would you? We're not too bright down there in South Texas. I, I mentioned to the church that I was going to be leaving after the service a few weeks back, and I said, I'm, I won't be able to, to, to meet, to, to shake anyone's hand, talk to anybody, because I've got to catch a flight. I'm, I'm going to Manhattan. Well, a lady caught me in the parking lot, and she said, did you say you're going to Manhattan? I said, yeah. She said, would you say hello to my son while you're there? <laughs> I said, well, it's a short trip, and that's a big city, but tell me his uh, name and give me his phone number, and see what we can do she said that's just the problem we've lost touch with him I don't have his phone number I don't have his email address but I'm thinking you might just bump into him <laughs> I said that's not gonna happen I'm not going to Muleshoe Texas this is Manhattan you just don't bump into somebody she said you never know his name is John Dunn. Keep an eye out for someone named John Dunn. If you just meet somebody named John Dunn, tell him to call me. I said, I'm not just going to bump in. What do you? She said, you never know. Well, wouldn't you know? 
I was walking down a main thoroughfare, and I noticed over the entryway to a building in big block letters, Dunn and Bradstreet. And I thought, now what was that guy's name? John Dunn. So I went in. I said to the receptionist, ma'am, can you tell me, do you have a John here? Why are you laughing? She said, yes, we do. Down the hall, first door to the right. So I went down the hall, first door to the right. I walked in, and there a gentleman was stepping out of the stall. I said, sir, can you tell me, are you done? <laughs> he said, I am. I said, then call your mother. Isn't that great? I just found him. <laughs> Why are you looking at me that way? I don't know. The church is getting tired of me, though. I went into the restroom the other day, where one in our facilities, where we had just done some remodeling, and we bought these hand dryers that kind of like you, 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 know, you, you hit the button in this hot air blast of hot air. I mean, it's so strong. You think it's going to you know, take off and blow your hand off, and it just, this hot air. And someone had taken a sticky note and written on it, for a brief message from our pastor, hit this button. Not really. It's a great church. And uh, I bring you greetings uh, from San Antonio. Let's pray and, and let's get to work. I understand you've been studying Joshua. It's a great book, my favorite book. And so we're going to dig in for just a few moments. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for calling us all together today. We are so excited about your return. We really are. But, Lord, we do grow weary and discouraged today we pray for a spirit of joy and peace to lift our spirits to set our eyes upon what is eternal and to return us to a deeper understanding of you through christ we pray and all the church said well here's what you need to know about the city of jericho the walls were immense and they wrapped around the city like a suit of armor, two concentric circles of stone, rising a total of 40 feet above the ground. They were impenetrable. And here's what you need to know about the inhabitants of Jericho. They were ferocious, and they were barbaric, and they withstood all sieges. They repelled all invaders. And they were guilty of child sacrifice. They were a Bronze Age version of the Gestapo. They were ruthless. They were tyrants. Until the day that Joshua showed up, until the day that his army marched in, until the day that the bricks cracked and the boulders broke, until the day that everything shook, the stones of the walls and the knees of the king and even the molars of the soldiers, the untoppable fortress met the unstoppable force and mighty Jericho crumbled. But here's what you need to know about Joshua. He didn't bring those walls down. I know the song says, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But Joshua didn't bring those walls down. 
His soldiers never rammed a door. They never scaled a wall. Joshua did not bring down Jericho. God did. And God will do the same for you. Your Jericho is your fear. Your Jericho is your heartache. Your Jericho is that unbearable grief. Your Jericho is your anxiety, your proclivity to analyze and compartmentalize and to criticize. Your Jericho is any mindset or attitude that sits like a fortress blocking your entrance into your promised land. Your Jericho is any premise or idea or philosophy that keeps you from entering into Canaan. In order for you to enter Canaan, your Jericho must come down, but it sits there like an ogre on the bridge of progress. In the case of Joshua, his Jericho was literally a Jericho. It was a city. It was a fortress. And there was no access to the promised land unless you first dealt with Jericho. You couldn't scoot around the side. You couldn't sneak in at night. You had to deal with Jericho. Now, you've been studying Joshua, the book, and so you know the context. But in case you don't, 1400 B.C., the children of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They could have entered the promised land 40 years earlier, but they heeded their fear more than they heeded their faith. And so God left them in detention, if you will, for 40 years. And then God spoke. And then Joshua, one of the two spies who 40 years earlier had said it could be done, Joshua listened. The Jordan River opened. The Jericho walls fell down. The sun stood still. The kings, the evil tyrants of Canaan, were forced into early retirement. Evil was booted and hope was rebooted. And the glory days of Israel began. The book of Joshua covers a seven-year period on the timeline of your Bible in which the children of Israel, for all practical purposes, went undefeated. And they received the inheritance that God had promised. And they became homesteaders. They built villagers. They enjoyed vineyards that they did not plant. And the trajectory of generations was rerouted. And we read the book of Joshua and we say, now, how could that happen again? Maybe you're in need of some glory days in your life. If so, then the book of Joshua is in the Bible for you. Sat across the table not too long ago from a friend who described his life with the phrase midlife misery. Been a Christian for 20 years. But he said, I can't remember the last time I overcame a temptation. I'm struggling with the same struggles I was struggling with the day I was baptized. He didn't use the phrase, but I could sense it in his voice. I thought the Christian life would be more than this. 
He's out of Egypt, but Egypt's not out of him. He's crossed the Red Sea, but he's not crossed the Jordan River. He's stuck somewhere in between liberation from sin and death. He's saved, but he's not celebrating. He's stuck. He's walking in circles. It's wilderness wandering. My friend is not alone in the wilderness, according to a thorough research by Reveal Research Organization. It canvassed over 1,000 churches. Only 11% of churchgoers would characterize their spiritual lives as victorious when asked, do you believe like you're increasingly loving God and loving your neighbor? Only 11% would say yes. Could be we have the greatest revival in history about to happen, and all we have to do is activate the folks that are already believers, but just help people learn how to come out of the wilderness and enter into the promised land. In the promised land, there's not the absence of struggle, but there's just the presence of pervasive victory. There's not the absence of stumble, but there's just the abundance of grace. There's not the absence of questions and challenges, but there's simply the sense that God is with me and God will guide me and I'm leaning into what God has provided for me. And the hallmark story, the signature story in the book of Joshua is, isn't it, the story of Jericho. So anybody who knows anything about Joshua has heard about the Jericho story. Let's visit it for just a few moments. It, it's, a, it's recorded in, in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. I have given Jericho into your hand. God did not say, Joshua, go out and take the city. He said, Joshua, I've already taken the city. I'm giving it to you. When I was 16 years old, somewhere between the passing of the beans and the corn, there was a passing of a set of keys at our dinner table. My father handed me the keys to an old Plymouth sedan. I said, where did these keys come from? He said, I brought them home. I said, whose are they? He said, they're yours. I said, what do they do? He said, they start that Plymouth that's sitting out in the driveway. All my life, I had been told if I was to ever have a car, I would have to earn it pay for it, save up for it. But one day in a moment of weakness, <laughs> my father, who worked his whole career with Exxon Oil in the oil field, gave in when the company was auctioning off old company cars. And he paid a few hundred bucks for an old Plymouth and he brought it home and I inherited it. I was given it. He said, go take the keys to the car that I am giving you. He did not go say, go earn the car. He said, receive the car that I am giving you. By divine fiat, by paternal decision and proclamation, I went from having no car to having a car. It simply fell to me to say, I believe you, Dad. When you say that car is mine, I believe you. I trust you. I receive this. I believe this. And you can bet your sweet September I believed him. 
Now, I still had to wash the car and gas it up and drive it. But boy, I had it. The of God said to Joshua, go and receive the city that I am giving to you. There's a big difference between conquering and receiving. The most common word in the book of Joshua is inheritance or the, a derivative thereof. Sixty times it appears. The big idea in the book of Joshua is Joshua not taking the land but receiving the land. The marvelous promise for the Christian is not that we take or earn or accomplish a victorious life, but that we receive it, we inherit it. We are heirs, yes, co-heirs with Christ to all the spiritual blessings. We are seated in the heavenlies. What love this is that God has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God not just soldiers in his military or members of his church, but yes, we are children of God. And as children of God, we are heirs of the promise. We are heirs of the promise. So God has bequeathed upon us every spiritual blessing. Do you need more patience? It's yours. Need more hope? It's yours. Need more self-control? It's yours. Need more joy? It's yours for the asking. Change your mindset. Joshua did this. Change your mindset. Things are different in the promised land. Promised land people say, well, I have a problem today, yes, but that doesn't mean I'll have that problem tomorrow. Do not incarcerate yourself by self-labeling. Oh, I was born a gossiper. I grew up a gossiper. I guess I'll always be a gossiper. My dad was a drunk. My uncle was a drunk. I guess I'm going to be a drunk. Stop that. You stop that. Promised land people don't think like that. We acknowledge we have struggles, but boy, we know that we're just a Jericho victory away from seeing that stronghold come down. And we're enjoying this journey, and we're believing that the day is coming that we're going to look in our rearview mirror and see that Jericho crumble. So you start expecting that to happen. Don't label yourself. You are God's child. You've been bought with the most precious commodity in the history of the universe, the blood of Jesus Christ. You can say what the psalmist said. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good what? Inheritance. The great creator of the heaven and the earth is shaping you, remaking you into the very presence of the image of Jesus Christ, and he's organizing details of the world to shape you and to change you. I can't wait to see you if I ever get to come back again because you're going to look better. I mean, you look pretty good right now, but God is changing you and he is shaping you, and it simply falls to you and to me to believe that God has given us the car keys to a new life and to receive it. Joshua did this. Something else that Joshua did. He took up God's weapons. I can picture the, the soldiers 
getting all excited when Joshua said, we're going to go take Jericho. They probably ran and grabbed their swords and their battering rams. But then Joshua said, well, we have a different strategy. He told them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. He told soldiers to march in front and behind of those priests and then he told the priests to blow the trumpets continually as they marched around the city once a day. As for the rest of the people, he said, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, and then you shall shout. There was no war cry. There was no hand-to-hand combat. There was no flashing swords, no battering rams, no catapults. What kind of warfare is this? This is spiritual warfare. This is spiritual warfare. Now, we live in a secularized world, and the idea of spiritual warfare is foreign to many people. So work with me for just a second. But the Bible says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of this present darkness. That we are at war not with flesh and blood, not with organizations or governments, not with in-laws or neighbors, but that our real conflict, if you trace it back to its root, is a conflict that we have with the devil himself, that the very one who lied to Adam and Eve is lying still. And when Jesus came to the earth, he called the devil the father of all lies. It is absolutely impossible for Satan to tell anyone anything except a lie. He has never spoken a word of truth in all of his existence. I do not believe he can take your salvation. I do not. But I do believe he can take your joy. He can take your effectiveness. He can take your happiness. He can take your relationships. But I do believe that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he does not stand a chance against you. And that Christians cast a glance at the devil. We don't ponder him. We don't obsess ourselves with him. But we equip ourselves. We are mindful of the devil and his strategies. But we believe that the church will prevail, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against God's people, because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So we don't panic in any discussion of the devil, but we simply take up our spiritual armory. We learn to battle spiritual battles, and we learn to fight with spiritual weapons. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, he doesn't use the word Jericho, but he does use the word stronghold. He says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down what? Strongholds. Just as... Jericho was a stronghold at the entryway into Canaan that had to come down in order for the children of Israel to inhabit and inherit the promised land. 
So we have strongholds in our lives, and they must come down in order for us to enter. Although our strongholds are not made of bricks and stones, our strongholds are mindsets and philosophies. The apostle says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Look at this. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So a stronghold is an argument or a high thing or a philosophy or a premise or a precept, uh, an opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It tries to keep you from trusting God. It, it, it's a false premise that wants to eclipse God's promise. It is a mindset. It is an opinion. Quite often we learn these opinions or we imitate the strongholds that our parents had, and, and they're kind of passed down from generation to generation. But every so often, there will come a Joshua who stands up and says, I don't care that all of my colleagues and ancestors wandered in the wilderness. We're crossing over into the promised land. And there's somebody who's moving against the stronghold that's been defining their lives. Here's some examples of strongholds. God could never forgive me. That's a stronghold. A stronghold of guilt. I could never forgive that person. Now, that's a stronghold. That's a stronghold of resentment. Bad things always happen to me. You ever met anybody who lives under that philosophy? They have a greeting card. Here's their name. This says, bad things always happen to me. That's a stronghold of self-pity. It's a lie. Bad things don't always happen to them. I don't care how bad their lives are but it's a stronghold. It's, got, it's a precept. It's a mindset. I have to be in charge for things to go right. That's a stronghold. You don't have to be in charge. Things go pretty well without you. But that's a stronghold of pride. I don't deserve to be loved. Some people don't think they deserve to be loved. That's a stronghold of rejection. I'll never recover. I'll never get better. I'll never overcome this addiction. I'll never get out of this economic freefall. That's a lie. That's a lie. But that is a stronghold, a defeat stronghold. I must be good or God will reject me. Uh, legalism is what that is, but it's a stronghold of performance. I'm only as good as I look. I'm glad that's not true. The stronghold of appearance or my value equals my possession. That's the stronghold of materialism. So a, a stronghold is a mindset, a philosophy that sets itself up against the promises of God. Now, many Christians are simply unaware of this reality of, of, of these strongholds. But this is what keeps us from moving into our promised land. These strongholds keep us from moving in. And so all we have to do is ask the question, God, does a stronghold have a stronghold on me? And he will reveal it to us. He is the revealer. And he will begin to make it clear. And this is such a liberating discovery because there are people who've lived all their lives with these strongholds of insecurity or arrogance or fear. And everything gets filtered, every word gets filtered through these strongholds. 
and truth doesn't break in. Remember, the devil is the father of lies, and God is the God of truth, and it is the truth that sets us free, not lies. So we must meditate on the truth, and then the truth brings a liberation. It begins to set us free. We don't have to be among those who live all their lives in the shadow of a Jericho. The Apostle Paul says that our spiritual weapons are from God, and they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That's what we want. We want to see them demolished. You want to see that struggle with pornography brought to an end, don't you? You want to see that season of resentment brought to an end, don't you? Aren't you tired of harboring grudges? Aren't you tired of prejudice? Aren't you tired of just assuming that nothing good is going to happen to you? Wouldn't you love to move into a season in which you hear the rumbling and the crumbling and see those walls come down and people around you say, you know what, you're, you're, you're different. You're not that cranky neighbor I used to have. <laughs> you seem to have a jig to your step. There's a joy in your faith. Divine power to demolish strongholds. So reach out and grab this hope. Expect it, okay? Here's how it happens. We do what Joshua did. Joshua took the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, I've got to read the verse. Don't I? <laughs> or did I read it already? Oh, I read it already. We take the Ark of the Covenant. We put it right in the center. That's what he did. Priests in front, priests in the back. Soldiers in the front, soldiers in the back, and the Ark of the Covenant right in the center, and commanded that this entourage march around the city of Jericho. He told all of the people who were watching to stand over to the side and keep their mouths quiet. Zip, zip it up, zip it up. He didn't want anybody questioning or chit-chatting or saying how crazy this was. He just wanted everybody to watch. Two million people were led by Joshua over the Jordan River. We're not talking about a group the size of a Boy Scout troop. We're talking about a city of people, 40,000 soldiers. Most of those soldiers were told to stand still and be quiet. This was going to be a work of God, not a work of man. God was placed right in the center. That's where we start. Do the same this week. Put God right in the center. Put him right in the center of your budgeting process. Put him right in the center of your kitchen. Put him right in the center of your decisions. Put him right in the, the center of your flight plan. Do everything possible to keep every thought possible on God. Marinate your mind with God. Turn the TV off more. Turn, open the Bible up more. Turn the praise music on more. When I travel, I've just gotten to the point where, and I've been traveling a lot lately, and I've got this Matt Redman album downloaded in my phone. I just play it over and over and over. And you know, I don't seem to get so upset when flights get delayed. I don't seem to get so upset when things, and I have, I've been delayed, got stuck in Atlanta last week, and it's all right. I've got Matt Redman to listen to. It, it, it just changes everything. When you... When you marinate your mind with worship and truth, Satan does not loiter where God is praised. Amen. Satan does not loiter where God is praised. We fight Satan by looking at God. 
We don't fight Satan by looking at Satan. That snake doesn't deserve a sideways glance. You don't ponder him. You ponder God. You marinate your mind in God. You fill your car as you're driving to work with God. You put sermons in your phone. You listen to messages. You memorize Bible verses. And you blast the ram's horn. I love this little detail. There are two horns in ancient Israel that were used, one a silver trumpet and the other a ram's horn. The ram's horn was literally a ram's horn that was turned into a blaster, some type of shofar, and it would call people. The silver trumpet was used to call people to assemble to a meeting, but the ram's horn was used to proclaim the victory of God. Now look at this. This entourage is walking around the city of Jericho. Not a brick has fallen yet, and they're blasting these trumpets of victory before anything has fallen. They're just declaring God is victorious over this. You can do the same. When that anxious thought comes your way, tomorrow morning you wake up and this anxiety pounces on you like a monster. Rather than sit there in the darkness and think about how terrible life is, you blast a ram's horn. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you just repeat that over and over and over. Satan will leave. Not only will he not loiter where God is praised, he will not loiter where Scripture is proclaimed. Maybe you think the week has too many confusing elements. You don't see how all these things are going to come, come together. And you're feeling overwhelmed by all the things that have happened to you and need to happen for life to turn out all right. Rather than give in to that despair, you blast a ram's horn. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you feel your back start to lift, and you inhale some hope, and you exhale some anxiety, and your head gets lifted up. Maybe you're battling with some guilt. Maybe you fumbled. Maybe you stumbled. Maybe you went to where you said you wouldn't go and did what you promised you'd never do. Confess quickly. Heavenly Father, I believe your Scripture is true when you say, if we confess our sins, there is cleansing for our sins, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just going to stand on that. Don't sit there and wallow in guilt. Don't beat yourself up. Don't drag yourself down. It's time to put that sin before the cross of Christ, acknowledge that God is mighty enough to forgive it, grace is sufficient enough to wash it away, and declare yourself as a forgiven child of God. Learn from that, resolve by God's power not to repeat it, and move forward. That's a Jericho that comes down. You see what you're doing? This is spiritual warfare. You're putting God in the center. You're filling your mind with worship and songs. You're taking up scriptures with which you can battle the lies of the devil. You're using truth to defeat the lies. Not too long ago, in between one of the services at our church, a lady, a mother, asked if I would pray for her 8-year-old son. She brought him into the room and introduced me and described the problem that he had been unable to sleep because he was seeing images. She called them scary images, shadows. She had taken him to doctors, and no one seemed to be able to help, and could I help? 
He looked timid. He looked withdrawn. He looked ashen. He didn't say much. He did look like he was under some kind of attack. So I told him what I've been telling you, that greater is he who is in the world and greater is God who is in him than he who is in the world. I told him there's a real devil, but that devil's on a short leash and his time is short. And that the real power is in prayer and taking up the weapons of, of, of Scripture and worship and faith and that the real battle is fought here between our minds. And I remember telling him, I said, you know, you, just because you have a thought, you don't have to think it. And I like that. I wrote it down. Just because you have a thought, <laughs> you don't have to think it. A lot of us grown-ups don't know that. We assume just because a thought comes in our head, I'm supposed to think it. No, you don't. You just tell it to get out. You manage your mind. Think about what you're thinking about. And so I gave him this tool. I said, whenever you have an anxious or fearful thought, here's what you do. Reach up with your hand and grab it. Remember, he's an eight-year-old boy. Grab it, yank it out of your head, throw it in a trash can. I taught my kids to do that. But you've got to fill that empty spot with something good. It's a vacant spot, so it's a vacant house. You want to put something good inside there. So I gave him two or three Bible verses to memorize. And I said, rather than think about those bad thoughts, pull them out of your head, throw them in the trash, and then fill yourself with truth. I received an email from his mom five days later. Since last week, the images are gone. He's no longer seeing them. He's doing well in school. He's enjoying the reading of the book of Genesis. I don't know why he picked Genesis. I guess he just opened the Bible and started reading. <laughs> God gave us Psalm 25, 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I'll wait all day. And he recites this verse nightly. I believe this has brought him closer to Christ. And he uses the strategy of throwing the fearful thoughts away in the trash can. I asked him, what made the thoughts go away? He smiled and said, I know God made them go away. And he will make them go away for you too, my friend. I'm so excited about the new day that you're about to enjoy by putting to use these simple weapons, these tools with which we do spiritual battle. You say, Max, but I've been walking around my Jericho for a long time. I wonder if the children of Israel might have said that because Joshua did not tell them how many times they would march around the city. God told him, but for some reason he didn't tell them. For all they knew, they'd be marching around for years. And our Joshua, Jesus Christ, hasn't told us exactly how long it's going to take either. But he has said this, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So would you just keep walking, keep trying, keep leaning into hope? For all you know, this could be the day. This could be the day that the walls come down. You may be only steps from a moment like this. On the seventh day, they rose early about the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened that when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the walls fell down flat, and the people took the city. And the very walls that kept them out ended up becoming stepping stones 
over which they could climb. Does a stronghold have a stronghold on you? Ask God that, please. Say, Lord, reveal to me a stronghold or strongholds and tell him I'm ready for you to bring them down. And think about what it means for you to live out of your inheritance more than your circumstance. You're not defined by the economy. You're not defined by ethnic background. You're not defined by your gender. You're defined only by God Almighty. And he's decided that you're worth dying for. And he loves you. He's crazy about you. He's tattooed your name, engraved it right on the palm of his hand. And the greatest news in the Bible is not that God made the world, but that God loves the world. And that he is preparing for himself a people with whom he will reign forever in a new day where there will be no Jerichos. Yes, a new day is coming. Maybe we'll be alive when that trumpet blast echoes from the heavens and we begin to sense every Jericho that the devil has created shake. And those stones are going to crack. And the very foundations of evil are going to be destroyed. Raised to the ground. And a new day will begin. And the dead will be called forth. And those still living at that time will be joined with him in the air. And we will inherit and inhabit a promised land. A glory day season that will never end. Amen. Amen. So, Lord, thank you now for this wonderful story. And we, we pray that though we've heard this story many times, that you would reveal new truths from your word in it today. And I stand before you, Heavenly Father, thanking you for this wonderful church, thanking you for pastor, thanking you for all those who have served here so many years. May your blessings be upon this church and all those who have been touched by it. Through Christ we pray.